Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 11. I'm here with Scott Moulton, as usual. What's going on today with you, Scott? Hey, how you doing? Uh, everything's going great. Uh, you know, just running the data recovery business, doing the same thing we always do, uh, trying to keep everybody's uh, data as safe as we can. And you're very busy, right? It stays busy. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Well, it, you know, one of the other things that has happened, too, is that, you know, in addition to doing the data recovery stuff, I also do forensics. So uh, now, apparently, this is the time of the year where people decide that they're going to do more, you know, criminal activity than usual. So... So uh, I get a few more cases than I might normally get around this time of the year. So I've started down that path of doing some other forensics jobs that are criminal cases or things like that. So, so that makes makes you know fills in a lot of time for you know whatever extra I would have had as far as life goes. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I think that keeps life interesting, especially since you know maybe around this time period things start to slow down, maybe in the uh, the data recovery field, or is that not the case either? <laughs> Yeah, generally, you know, the the summertime is, you know, I think it really coincides with, you know, school life from a standpoint of, you know, kids going to school and when they hit school, August and like school actually starts here in Georgia in August. So August 3rd, August 4th, things start to pick up by September gets here. Business is really busy with uh, with all the corporate stuff and things going on. But I think when summer gets here, I think for the most part, everybody just wants to take a break, take right. a vacation. Right. And then when kids stop going to school, parents are staying home more or going on you know vacation and doing things so they don't want to take care of you know those dead hard drives and all their data and they just do the bare minimum and and i think that goes with the heat too the the hotter it gets the less people want to do yeah that makes sense that makes sense which kind of sucks seeing as i move into florida i'm probably not going to want to do anything no, it's really hot in Florida. Uh, <laughs> I think that you don't know going from you know going from Pennsylvania to Florida. That's going to be something for you. I'll that's tell you what. Be, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I, I could see, I could understand your concern, but I'll tell you what. Since it got warmer out here in Philadelphia, I've been doing. I love going outside. I walk around every. I walk every day trying to lose some weight. So we're not I, talking I, I, about the same kind of heat, dude. <laughs> I hey, when I'm when I'm a little overweight now, and I don't like the heat as much. But when I'm thin. I love heat. I love the sweat. It makes me feel like I don't know if 110 degrees is is acceptable heat. I mean, that's, you know, you walk outside and it literally will fry the skin off of your body in an hour. <laughs> All right. I'm not I'm not kidding. You'll literally look like a lobster in an hour if you go out without, you know, the proper, you know, coverage and stuff. It, you can get you can get killed in in Florida pretty quickly. Get killed. Well, I'll tell you so, what. I'm gonna. I'm gonna well, give I, grew it a- up, I grew up in. I grew up in Savannah, so I'm right. like right over the border, and it was hot enough there. Like, I, you know, you're just you're really gonna enjoy it. So I, I guess that's good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm gonna give it a trial run. I think okay. I like it better than up here, anyway. Yeah. All right, Scott. Let's uh, let's start off with some emails here. We got a bunch of emails. We did skip a month, so I guess that's why they piled up. Uh, we're going to hit some emails off, and then uh, once we finish the emails, we'll, we'll probably cover, cover some other stuff if there's time. Uh, okay. Let's start with this one from Jerry. He's talking about the program that you uh, you know brought to light, and that's MHDD, which is a great program for diagnosing what's going on with a hard drive, right? Right, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to know about a remapping function in MHDD won't kill your drive. You may lose data, but it won't kill the drive. True or false? Well... Well, it's kind of part of both of the statements, uh, true and false. All right, so here's the thing. Um, remapping your data 
if you're using the remap function, it is not supposed to lose your data. So the whole point of the remap function is it reads the data from your drive. If it's able to read it correctly, but the but the data is still responding slowly. So in other words, maybe it takes 300 or 600 milliseconds to read that sector, but right. it still was able to read it. Then it will relocate it. That's why it's called remapping. It relocates it to the new location and maps to the new location. So in theory, it does something similar to what SpinWrite and some of the other tools do, like HDD Regenerator. The The whole point is supposed to be that your data survives and that your data is not uh, destroyed in the process. Now, the flip side of that is, is that it does make that a bad block. So in other words, if the default time in MHDD, I believe, is, three, is 350 milliseconds. So if... Your drive is taking longer than 350 milliseconds to read that sector. MHDD will still read it. It will still take longer to read it and then remap it, but it will mark that sector as bad if it took longer than 350 milliseconds after it's copied the data and moved that that sector. So there is in what's called the system area, which the system area you can kind of think of as the mini operating system for the hard drive itself. So so the hard drive, when it boots, it goes through this process of kind of similar to a post routine that a, a computer goes through and runs this little mini operating system. Well, in this little mini operating system, there's a reserved area for these bad blocks, and that table is a finite size. That table does grow, and when it eventually gets to a fixed size, it will it will not be able to add any more blocks. And so technically, some drives will actually report, oh, look, my table is full. I can no longer report any bad blocks, and then the drive will no longer function. It will actually stop functioning at that point. Now, under normal use, that shouldn't, in theory, happen, and I've only seen it actually happen a couple of times unless you forced it to happen. So, uh, So by making things purposely bad, it is possible that you could cause the drive to not be able to function anymore, but it would have to be fairly excessive. It's not usually going to be, you know, just during the process of remapping your current data. So it's unlikely. It, it's unlikely unless you did something extreme. I mean, right. if you had, you know, let's say you have like a really old laptop hard drive, which is really slow in the first place, right? Because they're the older laptop hard drives. You know, say two thousand, two thousand one. Uh, they probably most of them didn't respond in three hundred milliseconds. Some of them didn't respond in <laughs> six hundred milliseconds. And the older that they got, the worse, the, the slower they got. And then the closer you get to the center of the spindle, the longer that some of those sectors may take to actually respond as well. You have you have less data that can be read at the same location, so you actually have a larger amount of timeout that could happen. So at least from that respect, you could have some normally functioning drive that's functioning very slowly right. that you now have told every sector to now be eaten. So you may eat half of a hard drive or something like <laughs> that till you fill up this 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 table. Now, when you fill up this table and the drive stops working, is there anything that can be done? Can the table be reset or anything like that? Well, it can be reset. However, that's a firmware operation. Yeah. So there's only three tools that actually will reset this table using firmware. Now, what happens is it resets this table so that it looks like no bad blocks ever existed in what's called the G list. So the G list would actually be cleared. And then all of those sectors would become uh, enabled again, and you'd have to test your driver, re-enable all the sectors. Now, that that in most cases means that your data would be munged. It would be messed up at that spot. So you would have a lot of sectors that would come back alive, and you wouldn't have them remapped back to their original sectors. So your data would essentially be corrupt at that point. There would be all kinds of things that shouldn't be there that nice. are there. Okay. 
That answers the question. Did yeah. you say so mun- re- did you say munged? Yeah, I said munged. It's a it's a common term I use in my class that things get munged up and then, you know, it's uh so I have this I have a couple of these things about munge and plunder and so you go and you plunder your hard drive for all your data and if you munge it up then it's not going to work. So, uh there there are a few people who have suggested that we print shirts. Ah, <laughs> uh, I like, like it. The munge and plunder. It sounds more like we're pirates though, you know, it's Yeah, but it's a good inside joke. Hey, yeah. Be- between you and uh, the other guest I had on Podnuts, I'm learning a lot of new words today. How about that? All right. <laughs> Next email is from Jorge. He says, um, Scott and Steve, I have an old disk from a customer. I'm trying to extract data from it, but every time I connect this drive via a USB connector, I get prompted with this question. You need to format the disk before you can use it. I already checked the jumper set. Well, that's not really a question, but anyway, I already checked the jumper settings, even tried setting up the drive as a slave on an old computer and still no luck. Yes, I tried Ultimate Boot CD and Nopix and still nada. Um, let's see what he says. Of course, I don't want to spend big money either. Let's go the right. cheap way, please. Okay. <laughs> All right. So here's here's the first thing. <clears throat> first thing is, uh, so if you're using the Ultimate Boot CD and you're using Ornopics or anything like that, you have to be really cautious because the first thing is he told us that he was connecting this through a USB connector. So the USB connector is, first off, that's your biggest problem. Uh, you don't get any true feedback from the USB connector. That you got to understand the USB connectors, first thing is, is that it's not a native way to talk to the hard drive. It is it is a using a driver that would normally be called the mass storage driver or something in your system to communicate with that hard drive. So it doesn't respond to all the ATA command sets, and in addition to that, they have to basically use the mass storage driver or the mass storage function to emulate talking to this drive. So there's this cheap Chinese board that's connected to it for you know whoever paid 25 cent for this chip today in China would be connected to this USB board, and it doesn't have very much control of of errors or whatever types of problems are going on. So regardless of what's going on with the drive itself, the first thing that should happen is he should not be using USB. If you're going to do data recovery, if anybody's doing data recovery on a damaged hard drive, you should not be using a USB controller because you're not going to get a true uh, actual control of this device and be able to actually talk to it. So when you're doing the logical side, when you're actually got, oh, I've got a clone or I've got a copy or something, then fine, you can use the USB controller to go and do whatever because you're not dealing with damage at that point or damage to the actual drive where you know error correction is a big deal. So my suggestion, my first and ultimate suggestion, and again, this this still kind of plays into the ultimate boot CD and Nopix. He's probably not getting much response from those tools because you have to run USB drivers because it is not a native component of the hard drive of the of the motherboard for it to communicate with them. So he's going to have to run these USB drivers, which come on the ultimate boot CD or in Nopix, which then may again. You know, impede performance. The ones in the Ultimate Boot CD are going to be like you know eight bit or sixteen bit drivers. They're they're going to be crap, and so you pretty much just don't want to use those at all. Okay. So you only want to run those tools if you were actually connected to the motherboard. So again, you're not getting a correct response. So disconnect this hard drive from USB, kick USB to the side, and either find a motherboard that is you know new enough to support the ATA spec for the drive that you have. 
So in other words, you know, if you have like a 40 gig hard drive, it needs to be like ATA spec, you know, five or six or whatever it is. So you're looking at, you know, a motherboard made since 2004 or something along those lines, but connect it to a motherboard. And then you can run these tools through, you know, even if it's SATA or it's an IDE, it doesn't matter. As long as you're connected to the motherboard, you'll have a better chance of actually being able to communicate with the drive to get some feedback. Now, what it also might be, uh, so in this situation, being that it says, I can see the drive, and I know that I want you to format this hard drive, basically, he could just have a logical problem, or he could have a few bad sectors. So let's say there's a few bad sectors at the beginning of the disk in a critical location. It'll try to mount the disk. It won't see that it's mounted uh, because there may be some MFT corruption because of a bad sector. Um, the MFT would be like, you know, Windows has a master file table, and so maybe there's a bad sector and that this is corrupt. And so in this particular instance, he may actually, without you know leaving USB, be able to talk to this drive and be able to do a data recovery using a, an actual true data recovery tool as opposed to Ultimate Boot CD and Nopix, which are for diagnostics purposes. Nopix may actually be able to see the file system if it's not too badly corrupt. But um, you know we're still not getting to the root of that problem, which might be that there's bad sectors on the drive and he doesn't have good error control because he's doing it through USB. So if you're going to do this for real, then connect to the motherboard. And most likely from what the sound of what he's got is that he'd be able to recover this using a data recovery piece of software, using this drive as a slave drive on a, even possibly a windows machine or something like that to, uh, to be able to recover this data. Uh, not that Nopix can't do it, but even booting on Nopix might be a better choice if you're connected directly to, the motherboard with this hard drive. Right. What what software should you use? Do you suggest? Well, you know, commonly in the Windows world, there's there's a number of different packages. The the most versatile and affordable package that does the most of any of the tools is going to be R Studios. R Studios is a package that handles um, all in one, and it handles all of these different uh, file systems and operating systems right off the bat. So, in other words, it does HFS so that it can do Macs. It does NTFS, so it does Windows. It does Dynamic RAIDs, which are Windows Dynamic RAIDs, or uh, it can do RAID 0 and RAID 5, and you can reassemble them in in virtually in this one package. So And EXT, so it does EXT and UFS, so it does Linux and Unix file systems. So, so you know, some packages, this is the difference between this and some of the other packages, is when you are looking for something, let's say you know you had a Linux box and you had EXT. So you would have to go and find an EXT utility. But if you don't know what you had as far as a file system or somebody hands you a drive and you don't know what's on it, if you don't have the specific one, if you don't know what you're looking for, you may start up these individual utilities that are specifically to one file system. So like if you go get get data back, for instance, get data back is specifically for NTFS or FAT. And so... One of the nice things about doing our studios is that it's all in one. So you have this one tool and you bring it up and it'll basically tell you what it is. So it has it all built into the same tool. Now, don't get me wrong. I really like Get Data Back um, for runtime software has uh, tools for doing some of the best NTFS recovery that you can do. They actually uh, they actually can use ATA commands, talk to the drive, get back sectors that are damaged um, by doing retries and trying different things. And from rebuilding NTFS file systems, Get Data Back will do a fantastic job. Um, and it's not very expensive. Most of these tools are under $100. But for an all-in-one package, our studios is like $79 for a home user or something to do their own recovery. 
and it does all of these file systems. So you can do your friend's Macs, and you can do your own Windows systems, and you can do your, you know, your other friend's server that was on EXT or something, all in the same package. Yeah, I actually went to their website. I'm looking at it now. I thought it was. I thought I was reading seven ninety nine. I was, and then I saw the NTF version for fifty bucks, and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, they're really gonna chill. You're really gonna kill you on the additional version. But no, you're, it's seventy nine, and that covers. Um, NTFS, FAT, and a bunch of other file systems. Right, it's a very versatile tool, and the fact that it even does RAID, you don't have to you don't have to make a choice. Pretty much, whatever you want to do, you can do almost everything in this one tool. And uh, if you if you want to go up to the higher end, then you know you're doing your own data recovery company or something like that. They have higher end tools that you can use as well. Right. But uh, but they're they're fairly affordable and. But specifically, since this is like the do-it-yourself show kind of thing, for 79 bucks, you probably won't find a better buy that will do more things and that you can kind of grow into the package. Because, you know, if you're initially starting out and you just needed to do this one Windows drive, well, you've made an investment that you could still do later on if you had something that was more complicated, like a RAID 5 or something like that. You could still do that in the same tool. And so it makes it very convenient um, yeah, I remember whenever you're ta- trying to... Yeah, I remember you talking about this before, and um, I forgot it was so cheap. That's that's really not expensive at all for some for an investment for your business. I mean, that's a great deal. Yeah, uh, I mean, certainly from that standpoint, there's there's a lot of versatility that's in that cost. There, they also have like a network driver for another hundred dollars. You can connect remotely over the internet and do somebody else's, re- you know, rest- restoration or rebuild remotely as well. But uh, you know that may not be the most efficient way. Usually, it's meant to be you know on site or a local TCP/IP driver or something inside of a company. You can do your own data recovery by connecting to it, but. You know, there are other options with regards to email and things that the company sells, you know, but not to belittle again, like, uh, you know, get data back from from runtime. If if you have a specific tool that was specifically written to do one particular thing, as opposed to a generic tool, you may be better off with this one tool. So that's why I say that, you know, doing uh, NTFS or something like that might be much better if you're using get data back or something like that. Gotcha. Great. That's a great, great uh, suggestion. And um, I guess the moral of the story on that one is uh, don't use USB. <laughs> that, that's how we got started on that whole Yeah, thing. pretty much. Uh, don't use USB. And then we got down to the software side. Like I said, with this particular guy's stuff, I'm pretty sure that he would probably be able to do a logical recovery if he connected to this drive, even maybe through USB. He might actually be able to see his file system and recover his files. It's a common thing for Windows to pop up a box when something's corrupt or it can't read something. If it just can't mount it for some reason, it just assumes it has nothing that's valuable. And it'll just pop up this box and say, do you want to format this disk? And of course, if you click the button, then you actually are doing damage to your drive and your file system. And most of the time, it's going to fail anyway because whatever that damage Damage was is probably in that same place. All right, makes sense. Okay, this one's from Mad Marv. Ma- Mad Marv says, uh, "How could I recover data from a RAID five array if I only have the hard drives and not the server it was installed in? I don't have the RAID controller or motherboard. I think these disks came from a Windows two thousand three server." I'm fairly sure the RAID itself is undamaged and was working when the drives were removed from the server. So, uh, so this is kind of cool because this one's actually a, uh, a 
a, a very long topic that could go on. You could spend hours going over this. And conveniently, I have made a video exactly about this particular topic. So I've made a video of what I call the mystery box. So the mystery box is you were handed a big pile of drives, and you were told that they were something, but you have no idea what they were or what order that they were in. And so, were you told that they were raid? Were you told that they were raid? Sometimes, sometimes I'm told correctly that they are a raid five array. Sometimes I'm told that they're raid zero when they are raid five. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been told a number of different things that sometimes I have to be the one to tell them what it really was. Hmm. So that's why it's called the mystery box. that most of the time, and and this is true of of most consumers, is that they don't know what they have, and they they're not really ever sure. Uh, I mean, even even sometimes down to like a file name. Like I've had people who are like, I'm writing a book, and here's the title of my book, and this is the name of the file, and that they've been wrong, and that you know they might have worked on this file every single day of their life, <laughs> but they they have something spelled wrong or that right. wasn't the name of the file. It's just a common thing. And so this happens a lot, especially with RAID 5, because RAID 5 is so complicated in the first place that in a lot of instances, the best I could hope for is that they correctly numbered the drives when they took them out so that I knew what order that they were plugged in. Okay. That's usually the best I can hope for. Um, most people don't know how the controller is configured or some IT guy got hired to come and configure the, the RAID array and he played around with settings because they said they were going to do a database so he made it changes to the stripe size or something like that. But there's never, there's never an easy way for me to know. So the whole point is, is that what if in my world I was handed this mystery box and I knew nothing? I didn't know what kind of controller it was. Um, the type of controller matters. You basically have like five different ways that arrays are written. And there's only two of them that are the most common. And then in addition to those two uh, variations of how RAID is written, there are different stripe sizes. So the way RAID 5 works basically is that um, you have to have uh, a minimum of three drives, but you may have more. And for the number of drives that you have, there are that many numbers of stripes in most of those drives. So you will have parity that will be distributed across all of the drives. And I hear people when they talk about RAID 5 a lot go, well, you have a parity drive. Well, you don't actually have a parity drive. You have distributed parity. So what will happen is it will you will have a slice. So let's say you only had three. You would have a slice on the first one. So you'd have you know slice A, slice B, and then slice C on the third drive would be the parity. And then those would rotate. And then you'd have them in the opposite order. And then you'd have them. So the, the whole point is at any point in time, if you put an X on any one of the drives, that between A, B, and C, you could always make that same combination for those slices. Hmm. Um, the, the, the way I try to explain it to people, and this isn't exactly accurate, but this seems to make sense to people, is that they know if I said A plus B equals C, that if I had any two of those combinations of, of, of answers, that they can figure out what the other one is. So in other words, if I took A out of the equation and I only had you know B equals C, that they can figure out what A plus B equaled. Right. So they know, they know what A equals. Right. So, so that's kind of the executive summary version of what happens inside the RAID array is that these parity slices are actually a mathematical function called the exclusive OR. And so they exclusive OR A and B to come up with what's in C. And so the job of the RAID array is to do these mathematical compu- computations 
to supply this data and to rebuild this data from these parodies, parody slices. So you can be missing one drive from your array, and you can still do a recovery. If you are missing more than one in a RAID 5 array, then you cannot do it. It is impossible. So, so in other words, if I have three drives in my RAID array and two of them die, and I only have one drive left, I will have no valuable data. But if I rebuild one of the drives, then I can take those two combinations and I would be able to produce my content. Now, the trick here with RAID 5 is also that you can't just choose any drive. Like if two drives die, unless they died at the same exact time, then they don't have the same information on them. So mm. the, the array will stay alive if one drive dies. It will still continue to run. Right. And so the, the two drives will just mathematically calculate out this data in memory that is supposed to survive for that third drive. So whatever the last drive is that died is the only one that's in sync with the other drive. The hmm. oldest drive that died is way out of sync. It doesn't contain any of the information that's the same as the other drives anymore. Does that I make see. sense? Yeah, yeah, I'm wrapping my wits around it. Yeah, so – and this gets more complicated as you have more and more drives in your array because right. you could have – you know, if you have a five-drive array, then – you know, still the same story is the same. If two drives die, you have the same problem. You'll still have three drives that work, but those three drives don't make up anything without that fourth drive. You have to have at least four drives working in a five-drive array. Hmm. Wow. So, wow. What does what does Marv do then? Does so well in this particular instance, which is you know a leading question from the previous discussion, which is our studios. Our studios is a you know for a seventy nine dollar package, it's pretty awesome. You can reassemble your RAID array, and as long see he seemed to indicate that he had all the drives and that he thinks that they were all working. So maybe they were just all unplugged and put into a box. And he doesn't know the order. He doesn't know the slice size. He doesn't know the controller. But he wants to rebuild it. So what he would do is he would take all of these drives. Let's just say he had three drives because I'm just assuming that maybe he had three drives. Right. He takes all all three working drives. He connects them through – in this case, because they are working drives, he could connect them through USB controllers into his Windows machine and run this RStudio software. And there is a process for creating a – a virtual array so he can create this fake array in memory and then he can play with these uh arrays to get them set up right and it's not as as complicated as as it sounds um there is a process by which you click you know create raid then you create raid 5 and then it'll actually make a hard drive that will be a fake hard drive then you add the three hard drives to the components so that those three are in the order that you think that they belong in now this is the hardest part. The first part is figuring out what the order of these drives are. So you can almost always tell what the first drive is supposed to be, which one is first, because it will have what's called a master boot record. It will have the very first beginning portion of the master boot record, which is most common in most of the file systems. So if he's dealing with a Windows server, which he says he is, then a 2003 server would have a master boot record on drive number one. So if he sees one that says... NTFS, and that's the first drive. So in our studios, it will show him in those three drives, NTFS, and that's drive number one. And so he will put that one in the first position. Now, the other two positions, 
he's going to have to guess. He's going to have to figure out which one is the next one and put it in order. And then he has one more set of options after that to test the drive. He has what's called stripe sizes. Um, there's, there's well, two more options, actually, because there's stripe size, and then there's an orientation for what's uh, what the order of the slices is in addition to the drive order. So, believe it or not, as complicated as this keeps seeming, I have made a movie, <laughs> and it's and it's up on YouTube, and it's free. It's out there for everybody to see. And so uh, I did a presentation at DEF CON, and I did a live demo of this exact process, and it was videotaped, and my slides are out there for everybody to see, and how I actually calculate this out. But the easiest way for me to see uh, whether or not I have my rate array correct is by using graphics. Remember those old puzzles where you would have you know a square and you would have all the little square pieces inside the puzzle and you have to slide them around till they become a picture? Mm -hmm. It looks exactly like that huh. when you're looking at a rate array. You have slices and that's what that puzzle, that puzzle looks exactly like that. You just slide the pieces around to figure out the order that they fit. And there's and there's two pieces that stay the same. So you have this orientation where you can actually tell, oh, look, now I have the correct order for this, but I don't have the correct order for that because this one piece is the same and this one piece isn't. So you can tell that from my video. I actually walk through that whole process and show how that works specifically. Is this so the if video you you, where, you, where you have to put together the pictures of the hot chick? Yes, I have hot chick in the picture, so yes. <laughs> what's the name of the YouTube video? Or where can I what what's your username on YouTube? Um my username is Superfly Flippin' A. <laughs> if you go to My Hard Drive Died and you go to the presentation page, if you scroll down you'll actually see where it says RAID Reconstruction. Right. I actually have the PowerPoint presentation there. And then in addition to that you'll see a link to my YouTube channel. Is that really and your so, YouTube username? Yes, my YouTube username is Superfly Flipping A. Uh, originally, it started out as kind of a joke. It was like I was going to post a couple of videos I did like in 2003, 2004, back right. when when things first started out. Right. And then next thing I know, I was popular. Like um, I made this fake account. I was just going to post things under you know Superfly Flipping A instead of using Scott Moulton. And uh, and then. I ended up with like 100,000 views like in three months or something ridiculous. And I, and then I'm like, well, dang it. Now I can't take that. You can't transfer your views right. to, to a new account. Right. So I figured it was just better to leave it alone and I'll be super fly flipping A. And uh, I don't know. I think one day I was I was sitting there and I was typing and I and I said, well, what do I want my user account to be? And I, I heard that, you know, uh, there's a song by, you know, uh, Superfly or whatever it is on the radio, yeah. And I was I was listening to that, and I was like, "All right, Superfly Lemonade," <laughs> and uh, and that's where it came from. Um, that's so but, awesome. Uh, but it's a, a DefCon. It's a I think it's a DefCon 17, DefCon 16, and it'll say uh, raid reconstruction using your porn. Uh, no, there's no real porn. It's just uh, it's just this chick used to work for me, and she was model. She was did some modeling, and she gave me permission to use her photos uh, in my presentation. And so there is some pictures of this hot chick that worked for me for uh, six or seven months. I, I've said it before. I say, I'll say it again. It's brilliant how you, how you, how you included that in this content because it, <laughs> it, it would get, it's going to get a lot of attention. It's a, yeah, it's an yeah, attention getter. Uh, it's an attention getter. Well, you know, if she wanted, if you wanted her to model for you, she, she gave me her name and stuff to put in there. So at the ends of the slides, you can go look and see 
uh, who she is so that you can hire her for your own modeling if that's what you want to do. <laughs> or your hard so, drive recovery videos. Yeah. But, you know, it's pretty awesome from a standpoint of if you're going to look at pictures of something on the screen that you're going to have to try to reassemble in this, uh, you know, using sliding squares around and stuff, <laughs> you should at least have it be exciting. You should have it be something that's, you know, you should want you know, to you should want to have you should want to complete it. You should want to complete should, the puzzle. Yeah, right. Should, not only should you want to complete it, but it should be something that's dazzling to look at and that yeah. you know doesn't really affect you from a, a, a horrible standpoint. But uh, you know, <laughs> right. and, and, and people you know always ask you know, oh, is she like your girlfriend or whatever? And it's like, no, she only worked in my office and she now works someplace else. So you are free to hire her. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yep. Okay. Um, are we cool on that, or do, do we have anything else to, to wrap that up? Uh, you know, there's plenty I could go on about Raid 5 for forever, but it's really complicated to discuss, and so that's why the demo is so much better. So I, I highly recommend going and looking not only at the video itself, which is an hour long, but also at uh, the actual slides themselves, because the slides are on my site. They're not on the on the uh, same thing as the video, gotcha. but the they will they will basically include the same the same breakdown and show you how you can divide up pictures and you can tell what sizes they're supposed to be to reassemble the RAID. But uh, you know if it's a if it's a Windows 2003 server, our studios will do a fantastic job with it. So for 79 bucks, he can figure it out himself. Especially if the drives are intact, it's a perfect situation for him to learn how to do this. Great. And if those of you don't know, and you, you really should by now, Scott's website is myharddrivedied.com. Okay, I just had to add that, just in case. Okay, we got an um, email from Oliver. It says, hey, Stephen Scott. I'm an, I don't know why you include me in this. Scott's the brains here. I'm just the reader. But um, he says, hey, Steve, hi, Stephen Scott. I'm an ICT service manager in Hastings in the UK, and we have a problem with students putting the hard drive passwords on our laptops in the BIOS. It's my fault. I should have highlighted the fact that the techs needed needed to have put a BIOS password on when the laptops first came in, but I thought it would have been obvious. Anywho, these are Western Digital 160 gigabyte Scorpio drives. I've had a look around and have and having them unlocked would cost hundreds of pounds. I've loaded the English version of Victoria and it has an unlock feature, but it requires the password to unlock the drive. For now, we've just We've just bought new drives because it's cheaper than unlocking, but now I have a pile of about five locked drives. Is there a way around this, or are these drives just screwed now from a financial point of view? Thanks, guys, and that's from Ollie. Okay, so the first thing is is that the password problem is actually uh, done in firmware. What actually happens is when you enter the password, there is in this little operating system that's on the hard drive, there is a certain area that's in the system area that's specifically for storing passwords. So when the password's typed in, it's stored in the drive, and when the drive powers up and it goes through its post routine, before it actually reads a single sector from the hard drive, it will stop and it will request this password. Now, Sure, Victoria and MHDD both have a place where you can enter in the password, and then you can disable it. You actually have to do it in two steps, so you'd have to enter the existing password and then disable it. The problem is is that you have to know the password. Right. Now, now there are two types of passwords. There's a master password and a user password. Now, the, the laptop manufacturer probably set... They, they usually do. It really depends on who the laptop manufacturer is. 
they will usually set the master password, and that they won't normally allow the master password to be set in the BIOS that is done by the OEM or the manufacturer. So it will normally be 32 characters long, and it will normally be set by them, and they may already know that password. So like if like what happens normally, like a big company who would normally have, uh, you know, support with Dell or somebody like that would call Dell and say, okay, fine, you know, we have this deal and these drives are locked, but we need to unlock them. And the master password will then unlock and allow you access to the user password and reset it. So that's one option. Uh, so you could contact the laptop manufacturer and especially <clears throat> since you said that you're possibly a school, then you may already have this kind of a uh, uh, a, a support agreement with them that you can get this master password. Otherwise, um, Western Digital, their most common password is WDC over and over again until you get to 32 characters. <laughs> I was so going to say, they probably name it something like their company name or something like that. Well, when you buy a retail drive, the master password is usually set to that default for, there's different ones. So Mac Store would just be Mac Store with a capital M and Seagate has one with a capital S. Right. Uh, but but those are for the retail drives. They're already preset. So if it was a retail drive, and let's say the OEM didn't mess with it at all, then it's just going to be capital WDC over and over again. So the last one's going to like cut it off. It'll be like just WD or something at the end. It won't be a complete WDC. Um, so those those are the ways that you would deal with it that are the free ways. Because uh, if you you have to know the password, you just can't get into it that way. Otherwise, you have to use a firmware tool. So there are tools like the PC3000. Unfortunately, that's a $15,000 or it's a $10,000 machine. And by the time you get done with all the support and all the pieces, it's $15,000. PC3000, uh, who makes that? Um, the PC3000 is made by a Russian company called Ace Labs. So Ace Laboratory, it's the, it is the oldest and most mature firmware tool for hard drives and uh the reseller here in the united states is the same company that i've talked about all the time deep spar they actually sell the pc3000 uh but its base price is typically around ten thousand dollars there's a three thousand dollar piece of software that you add on and then there's one year of support so that you get all the updates and, and things like that it's another eighteen hundred dollars so you're at fifteen grand wow um and so it can see the passwords. It'll actually display in the firmware the passwords. You can clear them, and there's a process for doing that. However, uh, there's only three tools that actually are the firmware tools that will do that. There's a couple of other tools that don't specific that aren't specifically for um, firmware, but only for clearing passwords. Like there's a tool that's called the Shinobi. But again, we're talking thousands of dollars. So let's cut this down to the software side, the free the freest thing that you can get. There is a there is a website that's called HDD Unlock. HDDunlock.com is where you would want to go. They basically have a piece of software that works for most hard drives, not every hard drive. There are some hard drives that like you know, Toshiba, I mean, uh, Hitachi hard drives or something that you have to short a board and you have to go through all this stuff to actually unlock it. But you want to go to hddunlock.com. And on that, you will actually see that there is a tool that they have that basically can overwrite the password. So it can give you access back to the drive. But they charge based on a credit process. Like, in other words, you uh, for a 160-gig hard drive, they charge you $14.95. So seeing that this is a 160-gig Scorpio, each drive is probably going to cost you $14.95. But that's much better than having to go the data recovery route to clear those things, which is normally going to be you know, $800 to $1,000. Most data recovery companies consider password unlocking a data recovery function. 
So sure. you could go and try to buy just you know the unit price for $15 per drive. You could probably clear the password on these 160. I know numbers of people who have been using this utility to get by password problems so that they don't have to uh, send it off to a data recovery company or do something you know horrific to clear the password. Um, so there are a number of different ways to get this password off the drive, but this is probably your cheapest method if you cannot convince um, the support company or the laptop company to give you that master password or WDC over and over 32 times doesn't work. Um, but that would probably be my first thing that I would probably just attempt plugging the hard drives to Victoria or MHCD, type in WDC over and over, see if it works. If it unlocks the hard drive, then great. Then you got to type, type disable password. And that's the second function to disable. It's a DISPWD or something, and it'll permanently disable the password after you've already typed it in. But it won't make up the password for you. It'll permanently delete it. It'll permanently delete it after you've typed in the password. Okay. So the so the first one is you know you have to type right. in PWD right. or whatever and do the password and then disable password. So there's two steps. So don't just assume that once you've typed it in it worked. That this the you got you know a lot of people forget right. to do the second step, right, which is. Right disable permanently disable the password awesome so so anyway so at least if you go to that site and and i would say that this is good for you know this site for hdd unlock too also is a i mean it seems to be very valuable from a standpoint of it's one of the only sites i know of that will that has a software method for changing or overwriting the password and doesn't cost you 800 or a thousand dollars everybody else huh. pretty much has to you know it's always been a data recovery function um and we have to justify our fifteen thousand dollar machine so we like to charge for those things i understand that but i you know i went to acelaboratory.com i'm there now these things mm -hmm. are just little they're pci cards fifteen thousand i mean they don't look like anything special they're really fifteen thousand. Yeah, the are, are they really i mean just from your standpoint, is it really that much technology that, that should cost that much, or is it just there they have cornered the market on this? Um, well, there may be a little <clears throat> bit of the cornering the market on it, but I'll tell you that it is the best piece of hardware for data recovery that exists. There, there is no better piece of hardware that I can tell you. I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the one that you can make the most money with, uh, because by far the deep hard disk imager, in my mind, you can hit you know 85, 90% of the drives and do, but they do two different things, two completely different things. There is no other tool that is in the category of dealing with firmware that the PC3000 is. And so the card itself is primarily used for two things. One is um, it can control power to and from the drive, so it can turn it on, turn it off, and it has its own interface to talk to the to the to the drive so you can hook it up to a live running machine without having to worry about frying your drive and then turn it on and use it but it's primarily used as a piracy protection interface it has a a card that uses your motherboard and your machine to um create in a unique number you know kind of like windows does when you like identify oh i'm on a new machine i've changed three parts and it wants to resealize the machine um same kind of thing here but it stores it in a flash card that's on the device itself so you can't just pull the card out and put it in another machine it's uh, for piracy protection but the the capabilities for what has been reverse engineered for dealing with firmware for the drives that it actually talks to and for doing logical recoveries for uh, they have a tool that's called data extractor 
Um, they are the most robust of any tool I have ever seen in my entire life. Um, I own one. I, I've been using it for years, and it's a very complicated device. It's not. I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that someone who wants to do data recovery can just go spend $15,000, have a single button, and they push it, and it solves their problem. That does not happen. It is a very, very complicated machine, but it is the most mature the most robust, and it is the oldest in existence. And you can even do things like you could copy the ROM off of a hard drive and email it to your friend in you know Chicago who has the same machine, and then he can deploy the ROM to his hard drive that he needs to repair hmm. or something like that. So there's a process for doing these things, but um, but you know typically these are these are these are the tools that you use that are part of reverse engineering a hard drive, repairing a hard drive, dealing with specific firmware problems. And there are some problems that on certain hard drives that only this tool can do. Um, There, there is another tool that's trying to be a close runner up. That's also from uh, another Russian guy. Um, It's called the Atola. It's similar in some fashions. However, it is, uh, it is while it is a f- more affordable, it's a $7,500, so it's $7,500. Um, it is more affordable. It does have some features and can solve some of the problems, you know, maybe 40 or 50% of the problems that a PC-3000 can do. But keep in mind there's this other 40 or 50% of the problems that the PC-3000 is the only tool that it can do. Hmm. So I know it looks like it's, you know, it's just a card because this is the other thing, too. It's not even a computer. You pay $15,000 and you don't even get a computer. You uh, you still have to buy your own computer <laughs> and you put this card in it and wow. you install your software and you license to it. So it is kind of, you do feel kind of like, what the heck? This is all I paid for. Right. But, um, but when you get into using it and you understand what it's for and how you do things, you realize that there is nothing like it that exists. And and I'm sure that part of the reason that it's $15,000 is that there's a very limited market to sell to. And if you're going to spend a lot of time reverse engineering and, and doing a product like this, that uh, you know you, you can't have a job if you're not charging a sufficient enough amount of money. So right. you know if you know let's let's assume that you know there's I don't know a thousand of these all over the world. And so at a thousand of these at fifteen thousand dollars, you know, maybe they're making enough money that a couple of guys have a job. Yeah. And no, no, I mean, since you put it that way, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I, I didn't know the full history of it and why, it, what it can really do, but um, you know, you convinced me. It sounds like it's yeah, worth no, it. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, like I said, I mean, and I've, I've been doing this for a while. There's, there's no other tool like it that even comes close. Uh, do I, I prefer to have this hacker mentality that says I'm, I can find a way to fix this problem <laughs> without having to use something so expensive. Right. And that's usually what I'm trying to teach people. I'm trying to teach them because this is part of the other problem is that people have this misconception that I can just go buy this fancy tool. I can plug something into it and it'll solve all my problems and I right. don't need to know anything. Right. But the majority of data recovery is not about clicking a button. The majority of data recovery is understanding and getting this kind of, um, you know, oneness with your drive. And it, it seems silly to say that, but it's kind of like I become one with what's going on with this drive, and I can almost, I'm almost sensitive enough to know, you know, that it's have it has a head problem or it has this type of problem right. or you know from the sounds and the way it feels, but. A lot of that is not solvable by a button. You have to right. kind of know that. There are some things you can get, but... I think that's yeah, the same thing a, with, with any computer repair technician. I, I felt it, too. I couldn't explain it to, to some people, but you, you start to know how the computer you're working on thinks, how it's thinking, if you, if you really connect with yeah. it. And that just goes a long way, that intuition of, of how... 
of what, the best way to go around fixing something. So with the correct tools, yeah, like this thing, you could really form a bond with that drive. <laughs> well, I've seen what you do with your laptop videos and stuff, and you kind of seem like you kind of do some of the same thing. It's like, uh, okay, I'm going to listen to this, you know, and see what this sounds like. And if this sounds like this, then I can assume it's one of these things. And you seem right. like you're kind of going down that same path. Right. So, uh, so I'm guessing that, you know, most people that have the experience are, are like you, they're, they're they're doing this process and they're learning it as they go and they kind of get a feel for you know the the oneness with your machine right <laughs> that's so funny <laughs> people don't really understand it's you know programmers really understand oneness with their <laughs> with their equipment because like, when you're a programmer and you've lived with this code and it's in your brain and it's all part of you you actually feel like you've like you're like you're in the matrix and you've merged into it i've been a programmer before so I, you know but you feel like you're in them in this matrix with it and you live with it and it means something to you and it, it, you know, you kind of get that again with whatever the other items are that you've learned and that you yeah. can do. But it's something most people don't ever really get. They wow. don't really get with it. You know, does that make sense? Oh, I know ex- ex- kind of what you mean as far as programming because I'm I, I make what you just said there makes you want to be a programmer. But uh, no, I totally get what you mean as far as hardware goes. In fact, I've I yeah. fixed a machine by a method I call burping. I picked it up. And uh, you guys are probably going to lose respect for me on this one. I picked it up and I said, <laughs> you know, I feel like the thing to do with this laptop is to hit it. And I just opened it up. I pulled the hard drive out. And I pulled the hard drive out, battery out. <laughs> and um, I just took my hand and I started smacking on the keyboard like I was burping a baby. And I held it just like that. Turned it on. It worked. But I'm just saying, <laughs> that's just the thing I felt like would fix it. And I was right in that case. But well, right. I don't think yeah. it's a permanent thing, but I, it's like it's just I'm just trying to like shed some light on that your example there, but probably not the best. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's a it, it's a common thing that kind of happens that everybody kind of has this feeling that they have. Now, if you really like that feeling of oneness, then you really should try programming for like two months. You should write one program and and learn everything about it because there is no other sense like oneness when you're programming versus wow. any other piece of. I mean, nothing is even close to that. <laughs> uh, you actually just. It, it's hard to describe it's really one of these one of these it's a religion it really becomes you and but you know then the problem is escaping it as well because then you're sleeping at night and at 3 a.m in the morning you're going i know the answer (laughs) (laughs) you know it's probably it's probably better than playing world of warcraft yeah yeah well you know see the nice thing about programming is that you are producing something that may actually you know, create a skill for you and make you some money. Exactly. Whereas World of Warcraft, the only thing you're going to do is sell your your gold or, <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I don't play World of Warcraft. Sorry. <laughs> I'm afraid to play it. I don't want to get addicted. I, I just can't do it. I just don't have that kind of time. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, well, that's good. All right. Well, um, th- thanks for clearing it up for uh, my Ace Laboratory <laughs> question. What, let's uh, yep. let's go to one more email here, and then I think we have this humongous long one, which I don't think we're going to have time for this uh, show, but I'll send it off to Scott, and then he could probably answer it for you. But but Steve-O writes, um, I need to know if – he goes, first of all, I'm not, I hope I'm not too late for a Scott question. I need to know if he has a brand of standalone drive to drive you – a brand of standalone drive to drive unit he recommends. I just picked up a Bytech T-203 hard drive docking station. It's a standalone duplicator. Before I use it, I would like his input on it. They also had an uh, Aleratech brand. These require no PC and from what I read, uh, claim to do one terabyte drive in three hours. I don't, they only have SATA, 
but it'll do two and a half and three and a half drives on the same unit. Stevo. I guess he wants so, to know if it's a good if it's a good one or should he get the alert. Yeah, you know, here's the thing though. Uh, so I come from a forensics background, and so these things that are coming out now are are things that we've been doing in forensics for years already, that we already have hardware that clones and copies and does things fast. And so uh, while I'm aware of these things' existence and I see these things on the shelves and they range in price, I've, you know, I've seen these, you know, copiers everywhere from a hundred to $300 or whatever. Um, I'm using a much higher in piece of equipment already. Now, you know, first thing is deep storage skimmer drawer will actually do this. It'll clone them and do a much better job doing recovery and do the whole thing. Right. You know, I'll be as at a more expensive, uh, in a more expensive situation. Then there is, uh, as you step down from there, I'm using forensics versions, which are things like hard copies. So there's a Voom hard copy. There's also a Tableau and a Tableau, a TD one is around a thousand dollars. And it is much more versatile. It does many more things and will, you know, clone a drive, produce things, make an image file, and it'll do all these things anywhere between its average is five gigs a minute. So normally in most instances, you're copying at five gigs a minute, you're doing, you know, well over two hundred gigs an hour from that standpoint. Uh you know, it's it's certainly plausible to you know image or or do a terabyte, um, you know, in three hours or four hours or something from that standpoint. So it, it it really is a little bit higher in most cases if you're doing SATA to SATA. So as long as you have two new drives, they'll copy fast. How much was when that you thing? Have paid, uh, it's about a thousand dollars. It's like eleven $1, hundred dollars or See, something. The thing he's talking uh, about, I'm imagining, is like under a hundred bucks. Yeah. Yeah, it is. it's around 100 to $160. Okay. Now, here's the thing, and the reason that I was talking about this is, and, and as we step down from there, even there's been other ones like, uh, you know, Disc Jockey, Disc Duplicator has been around, it's around, you know, 400, 400 bucks or something like that. This particular item is basically, you know, some interface, basically it has the two slots, you put the two drives in, you hit the button and you, and you go. And I'm not positive how reliable they are. I haven't used these. Um, I've been tempted to buy them, except that I have so much better equipment at copying stuff that is already more reliable and gives me feedback. These things are blind copies. You hit a button, and hopefully it's done, and you know that it's done. Byte Tech as a whole, I've bought other controllers from Byte Tech. I haven't been extremely impressed with Byte Tech. I have had um, USB adapters that smoke and that have been broken and that have basically died in the process. Um, so I've had other ones of their equipment, and I'm not impressed by their equipment itself. So I wouldn't be as as you know, it wouldn't be my first choice from a standpoint of going to look at their particular duplicator. If it works fine and it works for you, then that's great. But most of the time, what they do, these drives are doing sector by sector copy. They're doing it as fast as possible, so they're going to do somewhere between three and five gigs a minute. Um, in most cases, they're they're basically going to be like a little Linux box or something inside them that basically is just copying through the interface as fast as possible um, with a, a dumb copy routine. And they're going to do sector by sector. So they're going to start at LBA one, and they're going to go you know LBA zero, and go to the end of the last LBA from the source drive. My problem is is that what happens if you have um, you know a partition and the partition is smaller and you want to copy the partition over on another device this device is probably going to be blind it's probably not going to know so you're probably going to have to use at least the same size device or your destination drive the the one that you're writing to has to be bigger and my guess is if it's bigger all it's going to do when it gets to the end of the partition is it's just going to stop right. and so you'll have free free space at the end so if you have a 750 gig and you copy it to a one terabyte the end of the partition structure will end at 750 gigs that last 250 gigs is just going to be unallocated space but geometry isn't going to be set 
So what's going to happen is you'll plug it into your machine, and it will show the 750 gigs, and the other 250 gigs is just going to show as an empty amount of left of partition that you can actually you know make another partition or something. And that may be fine for most people. In data recovery, for me, then that 750 gigs may be detrimental to me, be, uh, the, extra, the extra 250 gigs. The reason being is that whatever data was already there might still be there, that it didn't overwrite that data because hmm. it didn't have anything to overwrite it with. So my problem is, is as long as you know that and you're scanning, like for instance, I'm doing data recovery, and I start up a program, and I point it at the drive, and I say, wow, this partition structure is messed up. I need you to scan the whole hard drive, and then come, you know, and I tell people not to do this, but let's assume that this is the situation, that you have to scan the whole hard drive. It goes on for hours, and then comes back and gives you a list in this tree. Well, if I already had content on the drive, that extra 250 gig after it's cloned it might still have stuff that doesn't belong to the original hard drive if I was doing it for a client. And that bothers me that I, I don't I don't know right off the bat how it handles that. I would have to go and look. Right. But I am almost one hundred percent positive that that's exactly what it does is that it copies the big you know, LBA block zero to you know and just clones the drive for whatever LBA blocks are in existence. Right. So it may be perfectly fine as long as someone knows that and they can deal with that. I do data recovery. I don't just copy hard drives. So I need to know those things, and it hasn't been worth the investment for me to do that, being that I have better equipment that can control those things. Now, you could manually control that function. There's something called an HPA, and you could hit the function for HPA. I have devices that do this. At the end of a clone, if I'm cloning from a 750 to a terabyte, I can type you know, on the HPA, I can tell, make it a 750. It will actually make the drive pretend it's a 750. And so when I take it and I plug it into somebody else's computer, that extra 250 gigs isn't even there. It doesn't even show up. It's just not even usable, which is fine for me because I don't want them to have whatever was in that space back. Right, right. And there's some some ge- there's always some geometry issue with my drive is booting and I need this partition to be this size and I need it to pretend that it's a drive that's, you know, a 40 gig and not a 100 gig or right. something. And uh, I don't believe that this tool is going to do anything with the HP at all. All it's going to do is just clone the sector from sector to sector. We have a new problem that's coming up too, which is um, we have these new advanced format hard drives, which are trying to go to a 4K sector. And so... I know that the 4K sector in the advanced hard drive actually is only returning the 512 bytes, but my issue is is that how is this going to deal with those 4K sectors? Is it just going to, uh, you know, is it going to barf? Is it going to work? I don't even know if my data recovery equipment is going to work with it at this point yet. So, wow. so there are some issues with brand new things that are just now hitting the market. They're on the shelves now, and they're out. So my issue now is this thing going to be compatible with everything that there is with you, regards to copying that? It probably will be. I'm not saying it won't. You think um, that their websites will say? If, if it probably is? not initially. It's probably not until somebody says, oh, look, I got this new hard drive and it doesn't work. And then right. there's some firmware update or something right. like that. Because my guess is that primarily that these devices are kind of a small embedded Linux box. That would be my guess. Right. That they, they are some basic... Linux embedded on a board, whatever, and that's what the hundred dollars is that you're paying for. Right. You know, so so my suggestion would be for anybody who's going to do this that you should do a little bit of investigation on your own, being that there's probably like ten of these boxes out there now that I've seen that you can plug two drives in and hit duplicate. Uh, 
that you would at least want to know, do I have to worry about this extra free space? Do I need to worry about this HPA? What happens if there's extra data in that extra space? And what happens when I do a smaller drive to a larger drive or a, or a larger drive to a smaller drive? You know, does it do partitions? or It, it yeah. probably doesn't do any of those things. So there's no advanced functions whatsoever. It's just a plain Jane cloning function. I see. And, um, it's for simplicity. But what do you say, like, what would you recommend, like, if you had a choice, either something like this or maybe get, like, um, an eSATA card or pull, pull some SATA cables through your case and just you do it that way with software? Well, well, the true fact of the matter is, is that if you just went and got a fifty dollars motherboard, and let's say you got a, a you know, a chipset that was, uh, um, I don't know, uh, the GeForce chipset is one of the main ones that I know of, not the Intel chipsets. If you use, if you use a GeForce chipset, I can copy at three point two gigs per minute on on the backbone on this, you know, from one drive to the other. So from that standpoint, they're already fast enough to do three gigs per minute. It's just whether or not you've you're using it for that function. You can create your own out of just having a $50 motherboard, and you don't even need a fast processor because I.O. speed has nothing to do with processor speed from that standpoint. You can go get, you know, a, and, and I've done this. I have eight or nine of these systems here in my office where I basically have taken a $40 motherboard that was on sale, an MSI motherboard that has a GeForce chipset in it, and I put a $30 Sepron uh, chip on it with one gig of RAM, and then I just use a a copy routine. It's basically like a fast DOS clone routine, and it can do 3.2 gigs per minute. And so I'm less than 100 bucks, and I have control because I can now use it as a machine. I can see the functions. I can run other software and clone stuff. These things have been in existence for a long time, so you right. can use plenty of software to do these things. So right. I can also then flip over and use MHDD to do testing if I wanted to, or I can use something like Speed Clone or something that can actually do a reverse copy or boot on a Linux you know, disk and do something. So. So way less than a hundred dollars, and maybe it's just not one button. You know, maybe you right. can push the button and whatever. But I, I need to know in some cases what's going on and have some control with it. So if they're doing <laughs> diagnostics or doing other stuff other than just cloning, but um, but if you're going to just clone stuff and you just want to clone them fast, I just don't think it's going to be versatile enough for every situation that you run into. Gotcha. It's, it's always going to be same size drive to same size drive right. if you're lucky. And same size drive to larger size drive, and then it's going to leave that. It's not going to expand your partition. So if you understand that as well, is that at the end of your copy, if you had a 500 gig hard drive and you copy it to a one terabyte, you're going to have 500 gigs of free space. It's not going to automatically magically just take your partition structure and then make it the one terabyte. So it's not going to make it bigger. So makes sense. Well, what do you think about the difference between Bytech and Alara Tech? Any any preference there? Most of the time, those companies aren't the ones that actually made whatever their tool is. They bought okay. some other Chinese thing, slapped the name on it, and then did something of, it, of their own. So my suggestion would be uh, read a lot of reviews or test them yourself and make sure that they're going to be fine. You know, for especially when you get up into the two hundred dollar ones. And if you're getting much higher than that, you really should consider a more advanced tool because if 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 money's not the issue there are so many better things that you can do that would actually help you with your recovery or or help you with your imaging or even make image files for you kind of like ISOs of your hard drive hmm. which then are right protected and you don't have to worry about your data being there or or gone or overwritten so awesome. so uh, so if you know if you're under if you're under $200 and that's what you want to do then just understand that it's probably just going to be just flat out a dumb copy, and you're still going to have to probably exp you're going to have to use something like partition magic to expand the partition or do something else after the fact. Where you probably could still do that if you had your fifty dollar motherboard and used a piece of software to clone it. Gotcha. 
All right, cool. Now, there actually is one more email, Scott, and uh, it's not the long one. The long one I'll, I'll send to you separately. Uh, but let me read yeah. this one from Roger. We'll, we'll see if we could just do a, a short answer on this, and then we can wrap up uh, after that. So we got um, – so this is from Roger. He says, uh, Steve, can you ask Scott about check disk slash R? That's C-H-K-D-S-K space slash R. I've had great success using check disk slash R, but some technicians say that it's dangerous and don't advise using it. I'd really like to hear what Scott thinks about this and if it's okay to use it or or isn't what he recommends instead, or if it isn't what he recommends instead. Roger. Well, all right, so check disk in and of itself in my world is a dangerous thing. Uh, the reason is is that check disk is a very, very dumb, basic piece of software, which does the bare minimum necessary in order to make sure that the drive is at least back to some bootable state. And in some cases, what it actually is doing is eating your files in order to actually make that possible. So there are some times that it actually eats records. And one other thing, you know, keep in mind that you know today, check disk technically and scan disk are basically the two same, you know, same functions that actually exist. What happens is, let's say when your system reboots and and it knows that the volume wasn't unmounted correctly, that when it reboots, it tries to actually run check disk again and go through or scan disk and tries to go through your volumes to figure out what it needs to do to fix or repair. You'll always see it doing things, and it might do you know see orphans and it'll actually remove them or do something. So in those instances, what's happening is there's a log file, and the log file saw that the last change that actually made was not complete, and so it will back it out. So it's it's what's called transaction-oriented. In Microsoft's world, it's called transaction-oriented. In Linux, it's called journaling. So you actually have this function that actually says, I didn't complete a process. Something bad has happened, and therefore, I will erase whatever that last thing was that it was doing because it's not going to be viable. <laughs> so here's how stupid CheckDisk really is. So, and, and most people don't realize this, too. This is a function of your MFT. So on Windows... In a Windows formatted hard drive that's not FAT, it's NTFS, you have a MFT, and the MFT is the master file table. And in the master file table, you have two sectors for every record that has to do with your directory or a file. So you'll have two sectors. Those, those sectors make up 1K. So two 512 bytes is 1K. And this is your one records that each record is individual and has to do with the existence of a folder or a file. And inside of those records, as it's updating them, there is a counter. And there is a counter, and it exists in two locations. It's in the beginning of the sector and at the end of the 512-byte boundary, right smack dab in the middle of, of that 1K sector or whatever. So what happens is when it makes a change to a file, it says, oh, I'm adding it or I'm deleting this file. And it increments the counter at the beginning. And this counter that is either incremented or decremented, depending on what it's doing to the to the file, uh, is reusing that that record. And by the time it gets to the end of the record, if it has finished writing and it updated the record, then it increments the counter at the bottom. So what it does, what CheckDisk does, is it says, did the first counter get incremented, and is it equal to the same counter at the bottom? If it is not equal to it, then it is not done. Hmm. So therefore, since those two numbers don't match, let's throw the record away. So it'll actually like eat a file that's in existence because because of one it could be one bit as small as one bit being off even though you're only writing 512 bytes per sector so one one byte is going to be wrong. But 
the point is, is that that file may have been perfectly fine, and when you actually went to go look at the file, it would have probably updated the record fine on its own. But since Windows rebooted or considered that to be a crash or whatever, and it checks the MFT records, it may arbitrarily throw away a record that is actually valuable to you that that just one of these bytes did not get updated for some reason. You know, maybe they're, you know, normally MFTs would actually be updated correctly or whatever else. But, you know, I could actually cause this to happen. I can actually go into a record. I can go to the MFT record and I can edit these two bytes. Hmm. And if I edit these two bytes, I'll actually cause the operating system to throw away perfectly good data hmm. when it reboots and runs a scan disk. So this is one of the things when you actually play with this enough and you go through these different scenarios that you can cause things to happen, you can realize how bad that a small error in a piece of code or maybe some utility that you bought for $59 off the shelf that was supposed to clean up your registry might have made a horrible update to a file that it shouldn't have made a change to or an MFT record because some of those are actually like our, you know, tools that, you know, reorganize or, you know, whatever with your system. So these $49 utilities might actually do horrible things to your system that then Windows will then turn around and eat your file when it runs check disk. Wow. So I, I'm not a big fan of, of doing, you know, check disk and scan disk at, at all on a damaged drive. If the chances are that you have a drive that, that you you know, again, let's go back to the previous talk. Maybe you should spend that $160 and hit that duplicator button because that duplicator button, at least you'd have a clone of that drive before you ran check disk. <laughs> I would much rather see you do that. You know, if that's what it means, you know, spend 100 bucks and, and buy a duplicator. And before you do something that's questionable, right. that might eat records that are valuable to you that are going to be very difficult to recover after the fact, clone it. At least then you have a chance of going back to what the state was if bad things happen. Because in most of the time in my world, I can do data recovery on the files without actually having check disk or scan disk or booting it in a machine, hmm. and I can actually recover those files. But after you've already ran it and it's already done horrible things to it, um, there's there's a process that there's additional processes that happen when scan disk runs too. So for instance, if it finds that this sector is bad, it creates a uh, a boot log file, and this boot log file is at the end of scan disk is actually deleted. Uh, it's appended to another transaction log, and then it's deleted. And so there's a chance that you might miss something that actually happened because there's other files that have already been deleted that tell you what actually happened. So I would prefer to have all of that information before um, yeah. I, I ran scan disk or check disk. That would be nice. It's, Right. I mean, it's it's great the times that you get lucky. You just don't realize how lucky you were that it actually worked. <laughs> I must have got lucky a lot. I use check disk a lot. <laughs> but uh, well, that, that you was know, before, on a, on a was... working, on yeah. a somewhat working drive that's yeah. not badly damaged, you know, it can survive. Yeah. But you know, think about those times that you ran check disk and then you looked at your fat file system because fat, you know, when it was on fat file systems, you just get this folder that said file.chk, right. and then it had all these you know chunks of data in it. Right. That if you lost a file, you had to go look for your chunk of data <laughs> in the hopes that you could, you know, piecemeal your delta back together again. <laughs> it was it was just horrible, and uh, I don't know. It's just I, I think that most people don't know what they've lost, but when you know what you've lost, then you know how bad right. it is. Right, right. This was before you came around to enlighten me. I used to make these these, <laughs> these rookie mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, see now now I've helped you. You don't have to make any more rookie mistakes. I know. Thank you. Well, that, <laughs> that, that's actually it for the questions we have for today. Uh, let me make a quick right. announcement, and then uh, you got to tell us where you're going to be, Scott. Um, 
I want to say that if you, I know you guys shop at Newegg. I know you guys shop as shop at Amazon. If you do, before you head to those sites, like if you're going to go to Newegg, type podnuts.com/newegg. That link will take you right there. It'll also take it'll take you through the Podnuts link though. So anytime you make a purchase there, and um, going through that link, uh, we will get uh, the Newegg will send some money our way. So you're helping to support Podnuts if you do that. Same thing with Amazon. Before you go to Amazon, just type podnuts.com/amazon. And it'll take you right there, like it, almost like you went straight to the page. Except in uh, in the background, it would have inserted our link, and you will receive. Uh, they're they're going to send some money our way. So if you want to help Podnuts, and you know you're going to be shopping at either of those two places, just type in those URLs: podnuts.com/newegg, podnuts.com/amazon, and we'll get a little piece of the uh, commission for that. And we'll, that would be very much appreciated if you want to support the show. Scott, where are you going to be? Well, it's uh, two bit. What? What? It's too bad you didn't tell me this yesterday because I spent two and a half grand yesterday on Amazon.com. Oh, and if man. I'd have known this today. <laughs> oh, man. Why'd you have to oh, tell me that? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think I could right. count on you to spend some more money there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll happen like every 30 days or so. So, uh, so well, I'll, I'll go back on. Next time I'll go through Podnuts and I'll help support you, Steve. Thank you very much, Scott. <laughs> Where so you, uh, next where, month, yeah. what's happening is I am teaching a data recovery class in Atlanta. And Atlanta being my hometown is an awesome thing because I can bring a lot more equipment than I would normally bring when I ship it all over the rest of the world. So Ooh. I'm going to bring, yeah, three different types of soldering equipment. So we're going to learn more about soldering. And we're going to do some air soldering and air desoldering. And so I'm going to show you how to actually do like PCB board repairs and solid state repairs and things like that. How you actually will deal with the chips and be able to remove them and solder them and do the things that that uh, are going to be necessary if you're going to have those skills. Uh, so that's one of the nicest things from that standpoint. I'll have a whole lot of other equipment that I'm bringing, like deep spar disk imagers. There'll be uh, a pair for every for every pair of people. There will actually be deep spar disk imagers there for them to work on wow. and do their own recoveries. We'll do rebuilds. Um, I have a five day class. It's a very intense class. It's a boot camp class, so it actually runs longer hours. So typically, we're going to start somewhere around eight thirty in the morning, and we're going to end sometime between six thirty and seven every day, and uh, we go through. Everything that I, you know, same kind of thing we're doing here. Like I go through theory, I go through how the hard drive works, history, the parts, the pieces. We rebuild drives. Everybody gets six hard drives to rebuild during the week while they're there. And I mentor people. We go through the whole process. So um, I have kind of an early bird special right now going on that if uh, uh, the normal class cost is 3500 uh, if you sign up before June 17th, so if you send an email and sign up or do anything before June 17th, I'm giving a $300 discount to all PodNuts users. So if uh, if people want to get a discount or something, just send me an email and and you know say that you listen to us on PodNuts and you'll get a discount and you'll be able to sign up for the class before the 17th. Uh, the class is actually July. 12th through 16th it's going to be in atlanta at a uh there's a drury inn by the airport so it's a little nice hotel it's not very expensive hotel but it's still very a very nice hotel and uh and people tend to enjoy it there and then we also you know do other things like we have fries runs and we go out and get stuff on one of the nights the week and we all sit around and have dinner together and talk about other topics forensics and things that aren't 
topics during the day, but people tend to think it's the best class that they've ever taken. I've gotten responses from from some of the highest up people all the way from three-letter agencies all the way down to the to the lowest end of uh, I'm starting my own data recovery company, and everybody agrees that it's the best class that they've ever had from anybody uh, you know, even as high up as doing forensics and science and other things, they've they've typically loved it. So, uh, so Sa- if you want more awesome. information, yeah, if you want more information, go to myharddrivedod.com and go to the uh, the data recovery classes page. I have all the information there. Send me an email, and I'll be happy to tell you all about it. That sounds really awesome, man. It sounds like it sounds like the one you don't want to miss. <laughs> what what date is yeah, it again? I, what what dates is it? It's uh, July 12th through July 16th, so it's five days long, um, and we cover everything from the physical hard drives to laptop hard drives to solid-state hard drives. And we, like I said, we do soldering, we do platter head replacements, rebuilds, um, and I also teach you all the fundamentals of firmware and system area and those kind of things and how the drive actually works so that you actually get a good feel for how to repair a drive. But um, what I'm teaching you to do will help you repair between uh, 90 and 95% of the drives that are out there uh, that you're able, you'll be able to fix them and actually do it as a business. And I have people who, after they take my class, that hey, they've gone out and started the business right away. And within uh, two weeks to a month, a lot of them have quit their other jobs. They're making enough money to actually do a data recovery company now. We've got a little community of people who work together and do things and share information and share business. And uh, it's really worked out well that these people are, are happy with their new careers. And there's more than 400 people so far. We uh, we have consistently 200 people in our Google's group that uh, discuss consistently all of the things that are going on and have have a great business. Things are actually working out really well in this economy for these people. Wow. That sounds really exciting, man. If you guys, now's your chance. If you ever had the thought of doing this, uh, go to Scott's website, sign up and um I've seen I've seen what the course entails and it's it's amazing. So check it out. Well thanks again, Scott. Uh it's good talking to you again. It's good talking to you. Uh, I look forward to next month. Next month. We'll see you guys next time. Music has been provided by Evan King at purevolume.com slash Evan King.